Welcome back to American Countdown. Up next, we'll be live with our guest, Jack Murphy, who has the best beard since ZZ Top. The, uh, the author of the book, Democrat to Deplorable, also the uh, founder, co-founder of The Liminal Order, and a uh, new creator of an excellent podcast. You can follow him on Twitter, at Jack Murphy Live. Uh, uh, Jack, how are you? Hi, I'm doing great, man. Happy to be here with you. So you've been out filming some of the protests uh, in D.C. What, has, what, start- have you, what have you seen and witnessed? Well, you know, the first night that I went out, it was really quite chill. It was just a long march through the city, and everything seemed pretty relaxed, aside from them taking over, like, uh, the interstate in the middle of the city. No big deal. But the second night, the second night, things really got crazy. Uh, it was really focused on Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C. at 16th and H, right in front of the White House. And uh, the police, you know, it was uh, Park Police and Secret Service. Instead of having, like, a barrier, like a physical barrier or a big fence, the police were actually the barrier that was protecting the White House and Lafayette Park from the rioters and protesters. Well, the protesters that turned into rioters. And so it provided a very uh, intense flashpoint where the protesters could get right up in the face of the park police and the Secret Service. They could scream at them, yell at them. I watched people pull bricks up out of the street and throw bricks at the at the police and the, and the, park, the park police there. And they would pull the barriers away and whenever they pulled the barriers away, the, the law enforcement had no choice but to defend the, the perimeter. And so they would spray mace, they would uh, drop tear gas and other things, uh, fire rubber bullets and pepper balls into the crowd. I got hit right in the throat live on stream uh, with something right in my throat. Thank God this quarantine beard protected me. Um, but, uh, you know, that was just the, the protests, okay? What happened after that is where everything got really dismal. There were guys setting fires to buildings at 888 16th Street Northwest. Uh, they were taking dumpsters, filling them with flaming debris and running them into the police lines. And then from there, things just degraded even further. They started to set fire to buildings, fire to trees. And I watched firsthand live on Periscope. I had hundreds of thousands of people watching where I was literally 10, 15, 20 feet away from just hordes of people smashing windows, looting stores, stealing property, stealing merchandise, setting buildings on fire, openly disregarding all the instructions of the police. And when they finally decided, the police that is, to, to clear people out, that's when the flashbangs started. That's when the concussive grenades started coming. You know, those are really loud, forceful explosions. And they started just marching down the street and pushing us back. But what happened after that was that there was no law enforcement behind where they pushed us out. And so there was just a stream of destruction leading down 8th Street westward towards Pennsylvania Avenue. And they were just destroying everything that they could, smashing windows, picking up rocks, picking up bricks, setting fires inside buildings that they had looted. Uh, luckily, the fire department and the D.C. Uh, PD were, were sort of close behind. And so the fires didn't get too out of control. But had they not, uh, these people were intent on actually destroying the property, breaking in, stealing stuff and setting the buildings on fire. It was a chaotic scene. It was nothing like I'd ever seen in D.C. And I've covered other Antifa protests. I've covered other, you know, conflicts in Lafayette Square before. I've seen Antifa and and Richard Spencer and those guys go head-to-head in the park. But this was nothing like I'd ever seen in D.C. And uh, things only degraded and got worse that night. And the next day was the day that Trump made his way to the church, and that was the day that, uh, you know, there was allegations of tear gas being shot into the crowd. 
Uh, but from a guy who lives in Washington, D.C., I know one thing is for sure, and everybody who's listening who lives in D.C. knows this is true. The, the, the president and the vice president move around the city at all times. And if there is an instance in which the president's convoy is coming by, those cops do not play around. And everyone in D.C. knows you get out of the way of the police when the president is coming. So the idea that these were just peaceful protesters sitting there calm and just chill and singing songs is absolutely absurd. And if there was any chance that there was going to be a conflict between the protesters and rioters and the Secret Service and Park Police and the president, you know, they weren't going to take any chances. People get out of the way. Everyone here knows that. That's what you do. You get out of the way of the president when he wants to come through. And when he wanted to come through to the church, that was his right. And I think it was the right thing to do. The rest of it was absolutely appalling. I feared for my city. I saw the destruction. It was like nothing I've ever seen before living here almost 30 years in D.C. And I'm just glad that I was able to be up front get the video and broadcast it live, which got signal boosted by all kinds of people, yourself included. And I know that hundreds of thousands of people saw exactly what happened that night. How much has the media coverage compared to what you personally witnessed been accurate or inaccurate? It's completely inaccurate. Uh, you know, everybody wants to just the mainstream media just wants to call it, uh, you know, peaceful protesters being harassed by the police. But what I saw was exactly the opposite. I saw protesters and rioters antagonizing the police. I saw them trying to bust through the perimeter of the White House. This is the freaking White House, guys. You are not allowed to break through a perimeter of the White House. I saw them pulling away the fences. I saw them throwing bricks, lighting buildings on fire nearby, lighting trees on fire nearby. And I noticed that the PD, MPD, and the Park Police and Secret Service, these guys are well-trained, okay? And every time the crowd would swell in its energy, the park police and MPD would swell in their response. And most importantly, every time there was a conflict at the barrier, they had to make space. And the way you make space in a conflict like this is through weapon fire or for, for crowd control. And you do that to make space and buy time. And the only time I ever saw them do that was to repair and defend the perimeter. Now, the next night and the next few days, the law enforcement and Trump's team made a great decision. Instead of using actual personnel to man the barrier, they erected a giant fence. They bolted it together. They locked it together with chains. And there was just no way that people were going to be able to break through that barrier. And so the police were able to just step back and step back and step back. And when there was no uh, point of conflict, where there was no close quarter antagonism, and no thing, nothing for the rioters to attack as far as law enforcement, there was very limited conflict at all. So I think that the display of force that was shown actually brought a semblance of peace. And it also was a great adaptation and a new tactic, a new strategy implemented by the Trump and team to reduce points of conflict and to take away the option for the rioters. Now, what they did throughout the rest of the city was also impressive. They, they showed an extreme show of force at all local monuments, uh, important commercial retail districts. There was, uh, I saw every, every agency I could think of, I saw DEA, uh, DHS, FBI. Uh, there was Park Police, National Guard, Military Police, and DC MPD. They were stationed at key points throughout the city. And they didn't even harass the, the protesters or, or rioters at all one bit after that. They let us, I mean, I say us, I was just following the crowd. They let us walk right through military checkpoints. 
They let us walk through the city. They didn't do or say anything. The only conflict I saw was direct response to either a, a breach of the perimeter or destruction of property or otherwise, you know, uh, violent felonies that were being that were being conducted. And uh, once the Trump team decided to change their strategy a little bit like that, it reduced the conflict at the at the main zone there at Lafayette Square, which where Mayor Bowser eventually wrote uh, Black Lives Matter and defund the police in big letters that you can see from outer space. And then what happened with the rioters that were still left in town was they adapted. So they adapted their tactics, and instead of staying focused on Lafayette Square, there were a number of explosions throughout Upper Northwest Washington, D.C. the next night. I reported on them. Others reported on them. And then the rioters moved out into the residential neighborhoods. They terrorized a local market where I used to live. Tucker Carlson talked about it on his show. It's called Mac Market. It was the center of community. Everybody loved the guys that owns it, the Kim family. They lost a son years ago and the, and the community rallied behind them. But guess what? The rioters moved down the street. They destroyed the store. They looted it. They smashed windows everywhere. Every commercial district from the city center all the way out to Bethesda has been completely boarded up. Every retail center, every major store, every restaurant, everything's been boarded up out of sheer fear and terror that these people are going to be coming into your neighborhood and blowing up things. There were car explosions at 11th and M, which is nearby the White House. There were fire, cars on fire all over the place. So while the Trump team did a fantastic job of diffusing the tensions at the main center there, Lafayette Square, the rioters reacted and then they moved out into other parts of the city. And there's only one, one thing I can think of, their goal is just to terrorize the local population. But what's interesting about Washington, D.C. is that it is the bluest, most liberal city in all of America. And the people that live in those neighborhoods are willing to endure elementary schools being broken into and glass shattered, their local markets and retail places being shattered, broken into violence. They're willing to endure it because they believe that they're on the right side of justice by supporting this kind of crap. And for me, I wonder what is going to be the breaking point for these folks? When are they going to realize that no matter how much supplication, no matter how prone they lay on the ground, that the violence is going to continue and it's going to, they're going to, it's going to come to them eventually, but they haven't broke. I call them the race Karens of Bethesda. They haven't broke yet. And uh, we'll see. They're enabling most of this stuff, the white liberal upper middle class, female of America is basically enabling this violence because they're the ones we reading uh, white fragility by Robin DiAngelo. They're the ones taking the, the reading list from the American defamation league and sending it out to the PTA and telling their parents that they need to read these books to their children. And this is how you talk about race. We're experiencing a fourth generation war. It's on all fronts. It's physical, it's mental, it's moral, it's information, it comes through the schools, it comes through the culture, it comes through the freaking video games. My son turns on when he sees right there, boots up his Xbox and it says, you know, Black Lives Matter. So this is everywhere in all times and it, and it may have subsided right now, but I am not uh, looking forward to the rest of this summer because I think that this is only going to escalate. And in that capacity, who was it doing it? Was it just a, a, like I noticed there was a vice uh, view that did a study of Minneapolis and they were filming it. And it was clear to me that there were criminal gangs 
part of the operation, who had, had even mapped out, they knew in advance where the protesters are going to go. They even had their, all their equipment ready to rob a particular Wells Fargo. So it showed to me that there was Antifa involvement, there were criminal gangs involvement, and then I have what I'd call opportunistic crimes. And that was where you'd sort of like the old broken windows. When somebody sees a green light to commit a crime, they figure, why don't I just loot a little bit of uh, Louis Vuitton? Uh, wh what yeah. combination was it there in D.C.? That is, that is exactly right. So on the second night of the protest, uh, the, before they erected the barrier, it was very clear to me that there were clearly Antifa members down there. You can tell because they're all wearing the same clothes. They all bought the same gas mask that they distributed through their Amazon links to their boys. They had like the pink respirators. You can tell they're carrying skateboards and you know that they're organized. You can see that there would be a guy in the front line using a fire extinguisher to cover, cover them and create a smoke barrier. And then from like 20 feet back, they would throw M80s and rocks and bricks and stuff at the police. It was clearly organized and they had a strategy. Now, that was one group. Now, there was definitely also opportunistic thugs operating, right? Washington, D.C. is known for its crime, although it's been going down over the years. It was once known as the murder capital of the world. So it's not unusual for there to be opportunistic thugs operating in the city. And the, the next night, you know, we could hear the explosions going off in Northwest. And, you know, it's sad to say, but in Northwest D.C., we know two sounds. We know fireworks because people light up fireworks all year. And we know gunshots because people like to fire their guns. Yep, that's the pink respirator right there. And this was not the sound of fireworks or gunshots. This was the sound of explosions and people maybe perhaps breaking into ATMs, people blowing up cars to terrorize folks, maybe just taking opportunity to, uh, you know, indulge the weaknesses of the MPD who had their attention focused elsewhere. So it's, in, it's important to realize that this is a decentralized war. And these are, these are networks that don't necessarily line up and have the same members in each group. But what they are is they're opportunistic and they're taking advantage of this, this moment in time where they have an aligned goal. And that aligned goal is to erode the power of the establishment. And they believe that they need to erode the power of the establishment because established power is white supremacy. White supremacy has always been oppressive. And there's only one way to free the black folks of America, and that is to end the white supremacy that rules our land. And so that's their theory. And that's how they're coalescing. And they're just taking advantage of this moment of chaos uh, in order to enact their agenda as they overlap at this moment in time. And how have the D.C. politicians either suppressed or facilitated this behavior? <laughs> that is such an interesting question because D.C.'s mayor, Muriel Bowser, I remember when Muriel Bowser was a candidate for Ward 4 in Washington, D.C., and she stepped in behind Adrian Fenty. She had no qualifications, no reason being a council member, and no reason to become a mayor. So she's mayor of D.C. now, sort of by default, rating, rating on uh, Adrian Fenty's coattails. And she herself has done uh, – she, she – <laughs> don't forget – Muriel Bowser was the co-chair of Mike Bloomberg's campaign. She had eyes on the VP position, right? She is basically Mrs. Stop and Frisk. That's what I like to call her. She has increased the budgets for the police in Washington, D.C. She has hired people who think that we should be cracking down on crime. And then when Black Lives Matter comes to town, there's a word for it. I'm not going to use it, but she, you know, gives in to Black Lives Matter, and she she basically throws herself on the ground and says, hey, we're going to paint Black Lives Matter on the street, 
and we're going to say that we're a part of this and we support you. But then Black Lives Matter, they know better. They know that Bowser, she has been increasing funding for the police department. She's not going to defund the police by any means whatsoever. And they're calling her out on it. Black Lives Matter Twitter accounts I see have been calling Muriel Bowser out. I'm calling Muriel Bowser out from the other side. I watch protests go from the White House all the way down to the executive building, the Wilson building on Pennsylvania Avenue in Washington, D.C., where they protested right on the streets. So no matter what Bowser is doing, she's still losing because she she is Mrs. Stop and Frisk. She is Mike Bloomberg's lapdog. She wanted to be vice president with a guy who policed New York in a way that had never been policed before. And that is what she's all about. She's learning from him, from Bloomberg. And now she's trying to play like she's Black Lives Matter. And guess what? I don't buy it. The people don't buy it. Black Lives Matter doesn't even buy it. And to me, that's one of the more hysterical parts. Well, maybe the only funny part of all of this is watching her try to, uh, you know, give in, not going to use that C word, give in uh, to Black Lives Matter, but still take it right up, right up the rear because she is just not genuine in any way whatsoever. And in that capacity, I mean, you've had personal experience with Antifa. Uh, you, know, you had spent a long time and part of your career dedicated to improving educational opportunities for particularly for African-American children in the District of Columbia. And then got a, uh, effectively a docs campaign targeted at you trying to destroy your job. We're seeing that run rampant right now. There's an ex-Disney actress that's running around trying to dox little high school kids for any bad thing they ever said. Uh, can you tell people that story of what happened to you? Yeah, so you're absolutely right. For 10 years, I was executive director of charter schools in Washington, D.C., and I was a turnaround expert. It was my job to go into the lowest, worst performing schools in the District of Columbia, virtually 100 percent African-American, and turn those schools around and help those kids get better education outcomes. But despite all that work, just because I had written an article or two questioning radical feminism, an article or two questioning sanctuary cities, uh, sanctuary counties in Montgomery County in Maryland, and just because I happened to be in the same location as Richard Spencer and Jason Kessler, I was there video, videoing and recording in a journalistic capacity just like I was the other night. They saw me in this picture. They decided to, to, to figure out who I was. I watched them distribute my photo across their networks. They put a question mark over my head. Who is this guy? Figure out who this guy is. And then they decided to go after me. They went to my employer. They told them that I was a racist and a Nazi, and they began a campaign to get me fired. And once they did that, my, my employer at the time was the District of Columbia Public Charter School Charter Board. And they are completely staffed 110% with social justice warriors and critical race theory people who buy into the implicit association, implicit association test, et cetera. And despite the fact that they are functioning in an extreme right-wing radical public policy experiment like charter schools, none of them understood what they were doing, and they're completely SJW. So when they found out that there were accusations of me being a Nazi, which I am not, and I have disavowed the alt-right for many years. I've had personal conflict with Richard Spencer after the plurable. Like, this is not me. But they decided to call me a Nazi. They teamed up. They did a network attack. They got me fired. 
They got me fired from my job. Not only did they do that, but they contacted my local Little League board where I had coached my son for almost 12 seasons in Little League. They sent them all kinds of information from the SPLC and from the from the ADL and telling everybody that I was a Nazi and they demanded I be banned from coaching Little League, and they did. And what's terrible about that is my son, he and I don't get to see each other as often as we'd like because we're my, his mom and I are divorced. And we had that time that was special to us, and they took that away. They went after me. They tried to hurt me as best as they could. It was an information attack. And it's important to understand that this this war, this civil war, this fourth-generation war that's happening, it happens on a mental level, a physical level, a moral level, an information level, a kinetic level. And one of the things they do is they burn down buildings and they take over cities in, in Seattle and Portland. And something else that they do is that they isolate people and they attack them and they try to destroy their lives. And as we've seen with cancel culture, people getting you know fired from their jobs, people being prohibited from using financial services like PayPal or other things, this is a very serious way of harming somebody. And in our information age, your reputation is all that you've got. You Google my name and the first thing that comes up is that I'm a Nazi and a racist. How was I ever going to get another job in this education field that I loved, where I helped African-American students attain better education outcomes? I was a social justice advocate. I want ac equity for education. Who doesn't want to help children? <laughs> you know, that's what I was doing. And they decided to destroy my life, destroy my career, take away my income, ruin my reputation, dox me, swap me. They sent the cops to my house in the middle of the night over tweets. I had the police show up at my door with a tweet of mine blown up on an eight and a half by 11 piece of paper. And they said, we're here about the tweets, man. We're here about the tweets. And I just couldn't believe it. It was at that point in time where all the things that I had been reading about and writing about and thinking about for years, they all just became real. And in a way that hurt me, hurt my kids, made my kids cry, made them scared, ruined my reputation and my career. But I decided I wasn't going to let them get me down. And that was the year that I started the Liminal Order in 2019. And I decided to fight back. And that's what we've been doing. And I've been able to jujitsu all that negative energy into something positive. Where now the Liminal Order is up to 300 guys across the country, even worldwide. And we're all coming together with a similar worldview where we hold common values. And our goal is to build strong men, strong families, strong communities, and hopefully one day a strong nation. And where can people find out more information about the Liminal Order? Uh, the Liminal Order, that would be at liminal-order.com. You can also find me on Twitter at Jack Murphy Live, on YouTube at Jack Murphy Live, on Periscope at Jack Murphy Live, Jack Murphy Live all over the Internet. Find me. I will reach out back to you and we can connect. This is a personal project for me. It's something I'm very, very passionate about. And this is the way that we've chosen to fight back, to build strong men, strong families, strong communities, and a strong nation in turn. And if you, know, you wrote the book uh, From Democrat to Deplorable, I think there's a lot more and more people that I would have called old school democratic, almost populist incl you know, inclinations, uh, sort of believe in true democracy across the board, uh, but have been pushed away from the Democratic Party and the left by these would-be red guards of this new cultural totalitarian order. Uh, do you think more people will go in your direction come election time? What do you think their response will be to all of the insanity we've been witnessing? 
Well, you know, in 2016, there were 9 million Democrat to deplorable voters or otherwise known as Obama Trump voters, okay? And in, in 2016, I laid out all of the issues that led me to making that decision. A lifelong Democrat, I would call myself like Dave Rubin, a classic liberal, borderline libertarian, you do you, I'll do me. I'm all in favor of you know gay marriage and smoking weed and doing whatever, as long as it doesn't impact my ability to live my life. But all the trends that I identified in that book, critical theory, critical social theory, Black Lives Matter, Antifa, the infiltration in our universities, the corruption of Title IX legislation, the war on men, all these issues have only gotten worse since 2016. And in fact, my book sold really well in 2017 or, or 2018 when I released it, but it's going up every every month. There are more and more people reading the book. There are more and more people waking up every day. And there are more and more Democrats who are waking up and saying, enough is enough. This is not the Democratic Party that I remember. They don't hold the values that I hold. And I'm looking at you, fence sitters. It is time for you to get off the fence and stop free riding on people like me. It is time to support Donald Trump and forget about Joe Biden and the Democrats. If you believe in Western civilization and America, it is time to take action. Thanks for being with us, Jack. You are very welcome. Thank you.